She could not stay away from the woods on days when the sun was bright. The physical world with its dappled light was her earliest friend, and it waited with its open-armed beauty to accept her sense of excitement that nothing else could bring. This week on Selected Shorts, Recovering Childhood. We saw a globe of the earth, which revolved and showed the various continents and countries. We started learning the numbers. We ate delicious food, took a little nap, and woke to go on with friendship and love, play, and learning. Hi, I'm Malik Pancholi, and you're listening to Selected Shorts from PRI, the program that brings you great short fiction, read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. I've had the great pleasure of reading live a few times now as part of the Selected Shorts family, and I'm always awed by the power of people sitting in a room together to have a story read to them. The simple act can be so moving. Not only the stories themselves, but it can remind us of what it was like to have stories read to us when we were kids, or if we go way back in time, to how storytelling gave birth to things like the theater. Speaking of time, time flies. We know this. All three stories on this program are about time moving, from the past to the present, from one minute to the next, from childhood to old age. First, Elizabeth Strout's story, Snowblind, beautifully captures the way we remember our childhood selves and the secrets that families share and keep from one another. My friend Melora Hardin performs Snowblind. Back then, the road they lived on was a dirt road. And they lived at the end of it, about a mile from Route 4. This was in the north of the potato country, and back when the Applebee children were small, the winters were icy and snow-filled, and there were months when the road seemed impassably narrow. Weather was different then, like a family member you couldn't avoid. You took it without thinking much. Clayton Appleby attached a sturdy snowplow to his sturdiest tractor, and he was usually able to clear the way enough to get the kids to school. Clayton had grown up in farm country, and he knew about weather, and he knew about potatoes, and he knew who in the county sold their bags with hidden rocks for weight. He was a closed book of a man. He inhabited himself with economy, but his family understood he loathed dishonesty in any form. He did have surprising and sudden moments of liveliness. For example, he could imitate perfectly old Miss Lurvy, who ran the Historical Society's tiny museum. The first flush toilet in Aerostook County, he would say, heaving back his narrow shoulders as though he had a large bazoom, belonged to a judge who was known to beat his wife quite regularly. Or he might pretend to be a tramp, looking for food, holding out his hand, his blue eyes beseeching, and his children would laugh themselves sick until his wife Sylvia got them calmed down. On winter mornings, he let the car warm up in the driveway, scraping the ice from its windows, exhaust billowing about him until the kids tumbled down the salt-dappled snow of the steps. There were three other kids on the road, 
two boys in the Daigle family and their sister Charlene, who was close to the age of the youngest Appleby child, a strange little girl named Annie. Annie was skinny and lively and so prone to talkativeness that her mother was not altogether sorry when she spent hours by herself in the woods playing with sticks or making angels in the snow. She was the only Appleby child to inherit the Acadian olive skin tone and dark hair from her mother and grandmother. And the sight of her red hat and dark head coming across the snow fields was as common as seeing a nuthatch at the bird feeder. One morning, when Annie was five and going to kindergarten, she told the car full of children, her brother and sister and the Tegel boys and Charlene, that God spoke to her when she was outside in the woods. Her sister said, you're so stupid. Why don't you shut up? Annie bounced on the seat beside her father, and she said, he does, though. God talks to me. Her sister asked, how did he do that? And Annie answered, he puts thoughts in my head. She looked up at her father then and saw something in his eyes as he turned to look at her that stayed with her always, something that did not seem like her father. Not yet. Something that seemed not good. You all get out, he said, when he pulled up in front of the school. I have to speak to Annie. When the car doors had slammed shut, he said to his daughter, What is it you saw in the woods? She thought about this. I saw the trees and the chickadees. Her father stayed silent a long time gazing over the top of the steering wheel. Annie had never been scared of her father the way Charlene was scared of hers. And Annie wasn't scared of her mother, who was the cozier parent, but not the most important one. Go on now. Her father nodded at her, and she pushed herself across the seat, her snow pants squeaking, and he leaned and got the door, saying, Watch your fingers, before he pulled it shut. That was the year Jamie Appleby did not like his teacher. Makes me sick, Jamie said, throwing his boots in the mudroom. Like his father, Jamie was not a talker, and Sylvia, watching this, had a quick flush come to her face. Is Mr. Potter mean to you? No. Well, then, what? I don't know. Jamie was in fourth grade. And Sylvia loved him more than her daughters. He caused an almost unbearable sweetness to spread through her. That he should suffer anything was intolerable. She loved Annie gently because the child was so strange and harmless. The middle child, Cindy, Sylvia loved with a mild generosity. Cindy was the dullest of the three and probably the most like her mother. It was also the year Jamie saved up his money and gave his father a tape recorder for his birthday. This turned into a terrible moment because his father, after unwrapping the present with barely any rips to the wrapping paper, the way he always unwrapped things, said, you're the only one who wants a tape recorder, James. It's indecent to give someone a present you want yourself, though it happens all the time. Clayton, Sylvia murmured. It was true that Jamie had wanted a tape recorder, 
and his pale cheeks burned red. The tape recorder was put away on the top shelf of the coat closet. Annie, talkative as she was, did not mention this to anyone, including her grandmother next door. Her grandmother's house was a small square house, and in the long white months of winter, the house seemed stark and bare naked, the windows like eyes stuck open looking toward the farm. The old woman was from the St. John Valley and was said to have been beautiful in her day. Annie's mother had once been beautiful, too. Photos showed that. Now the old woman was stick-thin, and tiny wrinkles covered her face. I would like to die, she said languidly from where she lay on her couch. Annie sat cross-legged in the big chair nearby. Her grandmother drew in the air with her finger. I would like to close my eyes right now and pass away. She lifted her head of white hair and looked over at Annie. I'm blue, she added. She put her head back down. I'd miss you, said Annie. It was a Saturday, and it had snowed all day, the flakes big and wet and thick, sticking to the lower window panes in curves. You wouldn't. You only come over here to get a piece of candy. You have a brother and a sister to talk to. I don't know why the three of you don't play together. But we're not in the appetite. Annie had once asked her brother to play cards, and he had said he was not in the appetite. <laughs> she picked at a hole in her sock. Our teacher says that if you look at the fields right after it snows and the sun is shining hard, you can get blind. Annie craned her neck to see out the window. Then don't look, said her grandmother. When Annie was in fifth grade... She began staying at Charlene Daigle's house more. Annie was still lively and talked incessantly, but there had been an incident with the long-forgotten tape recorder, a secret that she shared with Jamie. And ever since the incident, it was as though a skin was compressed around her own family. The farm, her quiet brother, her sulky sister, her smiling mother who often said, I feel sorry for the Daigles. He's always so grumpy, and he yells at the kids. We're awfully lucky to have a happy family. All of it made Annie picture a sausage, and she had poked a small hole in the casing and was trying to squirm out. Mr. Daigle did not really yell at his kids, in fact, when she and Charlene took a bath, he often came in to wash them with a washcloth. Her own father thought bodies were private and had recently become red-faced and yelled and yelled hard because Cindy had not wrapped her sanitary pad adequately with toilet paper before putting it in the garbage. He had made her come and get it and wrap it up more. It caused Annie to tremble inside. The skin of the sausage was shame. Her family was encased in shame. She felt this more than she thought it, the way children do. 
But she thought when she was old enough for that awful thing to happen to her own body, she would bury the things outside in the woods. So she went to Charlene's house after school, and they made large snow people that Mr. Daigle sprayed with the hose so they would turn icy and glass-like in the morning. When it was too cold to be outside, Annie and Charlene made up stories and acted them out. Her father, stopping by to get her, would stand with Mrs. Daigle and watch them. Mrs. Daigle wore red lipstick. There was something fierce about her. Clayton Appleby got a twinkle in his eye when he talked with her. It was not a look he got when he talked to his wife. And one Saturday afternoon, Annie said quite suddenly, This is a dumb play we made up. I want to go home. Walking back up the road to their house, she still held her father's hand, as she had always done. Around them, the fields were endless and white, edged by the dark trunks of trees, and their spruce boughs weighed down with the snow. Daddy, she said, blurting it out, what's the most important thing to you? You, of course. He did not break his stride. My family. His answer was immediate and calm. And Mama? The most important of all. Joy spilled around Annie, and in her memory it stayed that way for years. The walk back up the road to her house holding the hand of her father... The fields quieting in their brightness, the trees darkening to a navy green, the milky sun behind their house that was the color of the snow. Once inside, she knocked softly on the door of her brother's room. He was in high school and small hairs were on his upper lip. She closed the door behind her and said, Nana's just a mean old witch. Nobody likes her. Not one person. Her brother kept looking at the comic book he held open. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. But when Annie sighed and turned to go, he said, Of course, she's an old hag. Don't worry about her. You always exaggerate everything. He was quoting his mother, who said that Annie exaggerated things. The farm had belonged to Sylvia's father. Clayton came from three towns away, and he had been raised in a trailer with a family that had no money, farm, or religion. He had worked on farms, though, and he knew the business. And after he married Sylvia, he took over the farm when his father-in-law died. At some point before Annie's memory, the house for her grandmother had been built. Until then, she had lived in the main house with the rest of the family. Listen to this, Jamie had said coming to Annie one day before supper, and they went to the barn and huddled in the loft. I hid it under Nana's couch before Ma came over. The tape recorder clicked and whirred. Then there was the clear voice of their grandmother saying to her daughter, Sylvia, it gags me. I lie here and I want to vomit. But you made your bed, so you lie in the bed you made, my dear. And there was the sound of their mother crying. There was some murmur of a question. Should she speak to the priest? 
Their grandmother said, I'd be too embarrassed if I were you. It seemed to be forever, the white snow around them. Her grandmother next door lying on her couch wanting to die. Annie still the one who chattered constantly. She was now an inch short of six feet and thin as a wire. Her dark hair long and wavy. Her father found her one day behind the barn and he said, I want you to stop going off into the woods the way you do. I don't know what you're up to there. Her amazement had more to do with the disgust and anger of his expression. She said she was up to nothing. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, Annie. You stop or I'll see to it you never leave this house. She opened her mouth to say, Are you crazy? But the thought touched her mind that maybe he was. And this frightened her in a way she had not known a person could be frightened. Okay, she said. But it turned out she could not stay away from the woods on days when the sun was bright. The physical world with its dappled light was her earliest friend, and it waited with its opened-armed beauty to accept her sense of excitement that nothing else could bring. She learned the rhythms of those around her, where they would be and when, and she slipped into the woods closer to town or behind the school, and there she would sing with gentleness and exuberance a song she'd made up years earlier. I'm so glad that I'm living, just so glad that I'm living. She was waiting, and then she wasn't waiting. Because Mr. Potter saw her in a school play and arranged for her to be in a summer theater, and people in the summer theater took her to Boston. Then she was gone. She was 17 years old, and the fact that her parents did not object, did not even ask her to finish high school, occurred to her only later. At the time, there were various men, many of them fat and soft, with large rings on their fingers who held her close in darkened theaters and murmured how lovely she was like a fawn in the woods, and they sent her to different auditions, found her people to stay with in different rooms in different towns. People, she found, who were extraordinarily, unbelievably kind. The same compression of God's presence she knew in the woods expanded into strangers who loved her, and she went from stage to stage around the country, and when she came back to visit the house at the end of the road, She was really surprised by how small it was, how low the ceilings. The gifts she bore, sweaters and jewelry and wallets and watches, knockoffs bought from city sidewalk venters, seemed to embarrass her family. Her very presence seemed to embarrass them. You're so thespian, her father murmured in a voice coated with distaste. No, I'm not she said, because she thought he had said lesbian. (laughs) His face had gotten heavier, though he was still lean. He slid a watch across the table to her. Find someone else who can use this. When have you ever seen me wear a watch? 
But her grandmother, who looked just the same, sat up and said, You've become beautiful, Annie. How did that happen? Tell me everything. And so Annie sat in the big chair and told her about dressing rooms and small apartments in different towns and how everyone took care of each other and how she never forgot her lines. Her grandmother said, Don't come back. Don't get married. Don't have children. All those things will bring you heartache. For a long time, Annie did not come back. She sometimes missed her mother, as though she felt across the miles a wave of sadness lapping up to her from Sylvia. But when she telephoned, her mother always said, Oh, not much here is new and did not seem at all interested in what Annie was doing. Her sister never wrote or called, and Jamie very seldom. At Christmas time, she sent home boxes of gifts until her mother sighed over the telephone and said, Your father wants to know what we're to do with all this rubbish. This hurt her feelings. But not lastingly, because those she lived with and knew from the theater were so warm and kind and outraged on her behalf. The older members of any cast treated Annie with tenderness, and so without realizing it, she stayed, in lots of ways, a child. Your innocence protects you, a director told her once, and in truth she did not know what he meant. There is a saying that every woman should have three daughters, because that way there will be one to take care of you in old age. Annie Appleby was everywhere. California, London, Amsterdam, Pittsburgh, and the only place Sylvia could find her was in a gossip magazine at a drugstore where her name had been linked with a famous movie star. This embarrassed Sylvia. People in town learned not to mention it. Cindy was nearby in New Hampshire. She'd had many children quickly and a husband who wanted her home. So it was Jamie who stayed at the farm, unmarried. Silently, he worked alongside his father, who remained strong even with age. Silently, he tended to the needs of his grandmother next door, Sylvia often said, What would I do without you, Jamie? And he would shake his head. His mother was lonely, he knew. He saw how his father increasingly did not speak with her. His father began to eat sloppily, which he had never done. The sound of his chewing was notable. Bits of food fell down his shirt. Clayton, my goodness, Sylvia said, rising to get a napkin, and he shook her off. For sake, woman. Privately, Sylvia said, What's wrong with your father? But Jamie shrugged, and they did not talk about it again. 
until Jamie, going through the books, realized what was happening. Terribly, it all made sense. His father's querulousness, his sudden asking repeatedly where Annie was. Where is that child? Is she in the woods again? All this fell into Jamie's stomach with the silence of a stone falling into the darkness of a well. Within a year, they could not care for the man. He ran away. He started a fire in the barn. He drove them insane with his questions. Where's Annie? Is she in the woods? And so they found him a home. And Clayton was furious to be there. Sylvia stopped visiting because he was so angry when she came, one time calling her a cow. The sisters were informed, and Cindy came home for a few days, but Annie could not. She said she could be there by spring. When she turned off Route 4, Annie was surprised to find the dirt road had been paved, and it was no longer a narrow road. A few new and large houses had been added near the Daigle place. She would not have recognized where she was. Cindy was in the kitchen, which seemed even smaller than the last time Annie had come home, and when Annie bent to kiss her, Cindy just stood without moving. Their mother, said Jamie, was upstairs. She would be down after the kids had talked. Annie felt the physical, almost electric aspects of alarm and sank slowly into a chair as she unbuttoned her coat. Jamie spoke carefully and directly. Their father was being asked to leave the home he was in. He was abusive to the orderlies, Jamie said, making sexual passes at all the men grabbing at their crotches, and was altogether disruptive. A psychiatrist had seen him, and their father had given permission for their talks to be shared, though how a man with dementia could give permission, Jamie did not understand. But as a result, Sylvia had learned that for years, Clayton had a relationship with Seth Potter. They were lovers. Sylvia said she had often suspected this, and Clayton was, demented as he might be, referring to himself as a raging homosexual, and he was very graphic in things he said. They would most likely have to put him in a far less pleasant place. And there was no money, unless they sold the farm, and no one was buying potato farms these days. All right, Annie finally said, her siblings had been silent for many minutes, and their faces seemed so young and sad, although they were middle-aged faces with middle-aged lines. All right, we'll deal with this. She nodded at them reassuringly. Later, she went next door to see her grandmother, who seemed surprisingly unchanged. <laughs> She lay on the couch and watched her granddaughter go about turning on lights. You came home to deal with your father. Your mother has had a hell of a time. Yes, Annie said and sat in the big chair nearby. 
If you want my opinion, your father went mad because of his behavior. Being a pervert, I always knew he was a homo, and that can drive you insane. And now he's insane. That's my opinion, if you want it. Yeah, I I don't, said Annie, gently. Then tell me something exciting. Where have you been that's exciting? Annie looked at her. The old woman's face was expectant as a child's, and Annie felt an unbidden and almost unbearable gash of compassion for this woman who had lived in this house for years. She said, I went to the ambassador's home in London. They had the whole production there for dinner. That was exciting. Oh, tell me everything, Annie. Let me sit a minute. And so they were silent. Her grandmother laying back down like a young person trying to be patient. And Annie, who up until this very day had always felt like a child, which is why she could not marry. She could not be a wife, now felt ancient. She thought how for years on stage she had used the image of walking up the dirt road holding her father's hand. The snow-covered fields spread around them, the woods in the distance, joy spilling through her. How she had used this scene to have tears immediately come to her eyes, for the happiness of it and the loss of it. And now she wondered if it had ever happened, if the road had ever been narrow and dirt, if her father had ever held her hand and said his family was the most important thing to him. That's right, she had said earlier to her sister who cried out that Were it true, they would have known. What Annie did not say was that there are many ways of not knowing things. Her own experience over the years now spread like a piece of knitting in her lap with shadows all through it. In her thirties now, Annie had loved men. Her heart had often been broken. Currents of treachery and deceit seemed to run everywhere. The forms it took always surprised her. But she had many friends, and they had their disappointments too, and nights and days were spent giving support and being supported. The theater world was a cult, Annie thought. It took care of its own, even while it hurt you. She had recently, though, had fantasies of what they called going normal, (laughs) having a house, and a husband, and children, and a garden. The quietness of all that. But what would she do with all the feelings that streamed down her like small rivers? It was not the sound of applause Annie liked. In fact, she often barely heard it. It was the moment on stage when she knew she had left the world and joined fully another. 
not unlike the feelings of ecstasy she'd had in the woods as a child. Her father must have worried she would come across him in the woods. Annie shifted in the big chair. Did they tell you about Charlene? Her grandmother asked. Charlene Daigle? Annie turned to look at the old woman. What about her? She started a chapter for incest people. Incest survivors, I believe they're called. Are you serious? Soon as that father died, she started it. Ran an article in the newspaper, said one out of five children are sexually abused. Honestly, Annie, what a world. But that's awful. Oh, poor Charlene. She looked pretty good in her picture. Heavier. She's gotten heavier. Oh, my God, Annie said softly. She stood to go, touching lightly the top of her grandmother's head, thinking how in the kitchen Cindy had said quietly, we must have been the laughing stock of the county. No, Jamie had said to her. Whatever he did, he hid. Annie had seen how their distress showed in their guarded faces. Oh, she had said, feeling maternal, protective towards them. It doesn't really matter. But it did. Oh, it did. Back in the main house, Sylvia sat with her children for supper in the kitchen. I heard about Charlene, Annie said. It's unbelievably sad. If it's true, answered Sylvia. Annie looked at her siblings, but they looked at the food they moved into their mouths. Why would it not be true? Why would someone make that up? Jamie shrugged, and Annie saw, or felt, she saw that Charlene's burdens were nothing to them. Their own universe and its wild, recent unmooring was all that mattered now. Sylvia went upstairs to bed, and the three sat talking by the wood stove. Jamie especially could not stop talking. Their silent father in his state of dementia seemed unable to keep himself from spilling forth all he had held onto secretly for years. And Jamie, who had been silent himself, now had to tumble all he heard before them. One time they saw you in the woods, Annie, and he was always afraid after that you'd find them. Annie nodded. Cindy looked at her with a pained face as though Annie should have more of a reaction than that. Annie put her hand over her sister's for a moment. But one of the strangest things he said, Jamie reported, sitting back, was that he drove us to school so he could, just for those moments, be near Seth Potter. He didn't even see him dropping us off. But he liked knowing he was close to him each morning, that Seth was only a few feet away, inside the school. Oh, 
God, it makes me sick, Cindy said. Jamie squinted at the wood stove. It puzzles me, is all. The vulnerability of their faces Annie could almost not bear. She looked around the small kitchen, the wallpaper that had water stains streaking down it, the rocking chair their father had always sat in, the cushion now with a rip large enough to show the stuffing, the tea kettle on the stove that had been the same one for years, the curtain across the top of the window with a fine spray of cobwebs between it and the pane. Annie looked back at her siblings. They may not have felt the daily dread that poor Charlene had lived with, but the truth was always there. They had grown up on shame. It was the nutrient of their soil. Yet oddly, it was her father she felt she understood the best. And for a moment, Annie wondered at this, that her brother and sister, good, responsible, decent, fair-minded, had never known the passion that caused a person to risk everything they had, everything they held dear, heedlessly put in danger, simply to be near the white dazzle of the sun that somehow, for those moments, seemed to leave the earth behind. Melora Hardin read Snowblind by Elizabeth Strout. I'm Malik Pancholi. The main character in Strout's story becomes an actor because it's where you get to leave one world and join another. A good story transports us in the same way. When we return, two fast tales. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Zabars.com is a proud sponsor of Selected Shorts. Zabars.com delivers New York original toasting bagels, coffee, smoked salmon, babka, and more throughout the 50 states, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Visit them on the web at zabars.com shorts. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Malik Pancholi. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or about the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to selectedshorts.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please write and tell us what you think of today's program. To be sure you never miss a story, subscribe to the Selected Shorts podcast. And you'll also get episodes of our spin-off podcast, Selected Shorts, Too Hot for Radio. Try it. You might hear yours truly reading a story about edible unmentionables by writer Tony Tulatamudi. All you need to do is search for Selected Shorts on iTunes and hit subscribe. Joyce Carol Oates is America's master of tales of psychic dread, but in August evening, she is a playful mistress of compression. If Snowblind unfolds the past slowly, August evening accelerates it into a possible future before you or the characters know it. Parents of younger children should note that there is a brief mention of adult behavior. Sonia Manzano performs August Evening. 
He drives a new model metallic blue cougar with all the accessories, including air conditioning and a tape deck and beige kitskin interior, plus some special things of his own. For instance, a compass affixed to his dashboard, a special blind spot mirror, extra strips of chrome around the windows and license plates, a glitter-flecked steering wheel spin, and in cold weather, a steering wheel covering made of snakeskin. In warm weather, he likes to cruise the city, as he'd done 20 years ago, or maybe more, except now he's alone, and not with his friends as he'd been back then. As if nothing has changed, and the surprise is that not really much has changed in certain parts of the city and off the largest streets, and he's drawn back always, a little expectant and curious, to the old places. For instance, St. Mary's Church, where they'd all gone, and the grammar school next door, and the half-dozen houses his parents had rented while he and his brothers were growing up, though he couldn't name their chronological sequence any longer, and one or two of them have been remodeled. Glitzy, fake brick siding and a big picture window, so it's difficult to recognize the houses except by the way of the neighboring houses, which are beginning to be unrecognizable, too. There's a variety store close by the school, hardly changed at all, where he parks to get a pack of luckies. And just as he's leaving, he runs into this woman, Jakey, he'd known in high school back before she was married, and he was married, and she's in tight shorts that show the swell of her buttocks and her small, round stomach, and a tank top blouse like a young girl would wear, looking good, with her fleshy, smiling mouth and her eyes shadowed in silvery blue and her legs still long and trim, though a little bunchy at the knees. At first, it almost seems Jakey doesn't recognize him, but then, of course, she does, and they get to talking and laughing, and it's clear she likes him looking at her like that, asking him questions about his job and where he's living now since the divorce and what's his ex-wife doing, and then they get to talking about old friends and high school classmates, guys he hung around with, some of them they haven't seen or heard of in years, so you'd wonder, are they still alive, but uh, better not to ask. And gradually, they run out of things to say, but neither wants to break away just yet. They're smiling so hard at each other and standing a little closer than you'd ordinarily stand. Jakey's the kind of woman likes to touch a man's arm when she talks, and he's thinking a thought he'd had before, and probably she has too, that the marriages by now are more or less interchangeable like objects blurring in a rearview mirror as you speed away, but also it's the warm, lazy smelling of soft tar from the streets and sirens in the distance, or it's the freight train like those childhood sounds you hear at night, melancholy and sweet-sounding with the power to make your eyes fill with tears. And they see themselves off somewhere, hurriedly undressing, and the frantic, hungry coupling and the orgasm protracted for each as in slow motion and the sweaty stunned aftermath, the valedictory kisses, caresses, stammered words, 
All that they aren't going to do, but they've locked together seeing it, and Jakey's eyes look dilated, and he's feeling the impact of it as if somebody were pushing hard on his chest with an open hand so that he almost can't breathe. Honey, was that sweet? Are the words he isn't going to say, and Jakey can't think of what to say either, so they back off from each other, and she says, take care, and he says, Okay, you too. And he gets in his car and drives off sad feeling and excited and eager to be gone all at once, knowing not to bother looking for her in the rear view mirror. He's accelerating so fast. Sonia Manzano read August Evening by Joyce Carol Oates at a program of Flash Fiction, at which I also got the chance to perform. Flash Fiction is a super exciting night, because we get to read truly short stories, stories from as short as just a paragraph to maybe six or seven pages. We give voice to emerging writers and celebrate up-and-coming talent. I'm Malik Pancholi. Our final story, Half a Day, is by the late Egyptian Nobel laureate, Nahi Mafuz. In this tale, a young boy starts off for his first day of school and steps right into a wrinkle in time. Bruce Altman reads Half a Day. I proceeded alongside my father, clutching his right hand, running to keep up with the long strides he was taking. All my clothes were new, the black shoes, the green school uniform, and the red tarbouche. My delight in my new clothes, however, was not altogether unmarred, for this was no feast day, but the day on which I was to be cast into school for the first time. My mother stood at the window watching our progress, and I would turn toward her from time to time as though appealing for help. We walked along a street lined with gardens. On both sides were extensive fields planted with crops, prickly pears, henna trees, and a few date palms. Why school? I challenged my father openly. I shall never do anything to annoy you. (laughs) I'm not punishing you, he said laughing. School's not a punishment. It's the factory that makes useful men out of boys. Don't you want to be like your father and brothers? I was not convinced. I did not believe that there was really any good to be had in tearing me away from the intimacy of my home and throwing me into this building that stood at the end of the road like some huge high-walled fortress, exceedingly stern and grim. When we arrived at the gate, we could see the courtyard, vast and crammed, full of boys and girls. Go in by yourself, said my father, and join them. Put a smile on your face and be a good example to others. I hesitated and clung to his hand, but he gently pushed me from him. Be a man, he said. Today, you truly begin life. You will find me waiting for you when it's time to leave. 
I took a few steps, then stopped and looked, but saw nothing. Then the faces of boys and girls came into view. I did not know a single one of them, and none of them knew me. I felt I was a stranger who had lost his way. But glances of curiosity were directed toward me, and one boy approached and asked, Who brought you? My father, I whispered. My father's dead, he said quite simply. I did not know what to say. The gate was closed, letting out a pitiable screech. Some of the children burst into tears. The bell rang. A lady came along, followed by a group of men. The men began sorting us into ranks. We were formed into an intricate pattern in the great courtyard surrounded on three sides by high buildings of several floors. From each floor, we were overlooked by a long balcony roofed in wood. This is your new home, said the woman. Here, too, there are mothers and fathers. Here, there is everything that is enjoyable and beneficial to knowledge and religion. Dry your tears and face life joyfully. We submitted to the facts, and this submission brought a sort of contentment. Living beings were drawn to other living beings. And from the first moments, my heart made friends with such boys as were to be my friends, and fell in love with such girls as I was to be in love with, so that it seemed my misgivings had had no basis. I had never imagined school would have this rich variety. We played all sorts of different games, swings, the vaulting horse, ball games. In the music room, we chanted our first songs. We also had our first introduction to language. We saw a globe of the earth, which revolved and showed the various continents and countries. We started learning the numbers. The story of the creator of the universe was read to us, and we were told of his present world and of his hereafter. And we heard examples of what he said. We ate delicious food, took a little nap, and woke to go on with friendship and love, play and learning. As our path revealed itself to us, however, we did not find it as totally sweet and unclouded as we had presumed. Dust-laden winds and unexpected accidents came about suddenly, so we had to be watchful at the ready, very patient. It was not all a matter of playing and fooling around. Rivalries could bring about pain and hatred or give rise to fighting. And while the lady would sometimes smile, she would often scowl or scold. Even more frequently, she would resort to physical punishment. In addition, the time for changing one's mind was over and gone, and there was no question of ever returning to the paradise of home. Nothing lay ahead of us but exertion, struggle, and perseverance. Those who were able 
took advantage of the opportunities for success and happiness that presented themselves amid the worries. The bell rang, announcing the passing of the day and the end of work. The throngs of children rushed toward the gate, which was opened again. I bade farewell to friends and sweethearts and passed through the gate. I peered around, but found no trace of my father, who had promised to be there. I stepped aside to wait. When I had waited for a long time without avail, I decided to return home on my own. After I had taken a few steps, a middle-aged man passed by, and I realized at once that I knew him. He came toward me, smiling, and shook me by the hand, saying, It's a long time since we last met. How are you? With a nod of my head, I agreed with him, and in turn asked, And you? How are you? As you can see, not all that good. The Almighty be praised. Again, he shook me by the hand and went off. I proceeded a few steps, then came to a startled halt. Good Lord! Where was the street lined with gardens? Where had it disappeared to? When did all these vehicles invade it? And when did these hordes of humanity come to rest upon its surface? How did these hills of refuse come to cover its sides? And where were the fields that bordered it? High buildings had taken over. The streets surged with children, and disturbing noises shook the air. At various points stood conjurers, showing off their tricks and making snakes appear from baskets. Then there was a band announcing the opening of a circus, with clowns and weightlifters walking in front. A line of trucks carrying central security troops crawled majestically by. The siren of a fire engine shrieked, and it was not clear how the vehicle would cleave its way to reach the blazing fire. A battle raged between a taxi driver and his passenger, while the passenger's wife called out for help, and no one answered. Good God, I, I was in a daze. My head spun. I almost went crazy. How could all of this have happened in half a day, between early morning and sunset? I would find the answer at home with my father. But where was my home? I could only see tall buildings and hordes of people. I hastened on to the crossroads between the gardens and Abu Koda. I had to cross Abu Koda to reach my house. But the stream of cars would not let up. The fire engine's siren was shrieking at full pitch as it moved at a snail's pace. And I said to myself, let the fire take its pleasure in what it consumes. Extremely irritated, I wondered, when would I be able to cross? 
I stood there a long time, until the young lad employed at the ironing shop on the corner came up to me. He stretched out his arm and said gallantly, Grandpa, let me take you across. Bruce Altman performed Half a Day by Nahi Mafuz. I'm Malik Pantoli. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our hosts are recorded at Argo Studios in New York City. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Support for Selected Shorts is provided by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the Short Story, the Seedlings Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, and the Axe Houghton Foundation. Additional support is provided by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, publishers of the best American short stories, edited in 2017 by Meg Wolitzer. Selected Shorts is also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. The program is also made possible by the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Zabars.com is a proud sponsor of Selected Shorts. Zabars.com delivers New York original toasting bagels, coffee, smoked salmon, babka, and more throughout the 50 states, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Visit them on the web at zabars.com shorts. Additional support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide. Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space and is distributed by PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.